So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're in the last of four sermons looking at four different uh, conversion and evangelism accounts in the book of Acts. Then we'll have a couple weeks to talk about uh, church officers, elders, and deacons, and then we'll be in the book of 1 Samuel. So we're moving right along. Uh, but one more to go in Acts for now. And then at some point I'll have to return to Acts because I'm really excited to return to Acts at some point and preach through the whole thing. Uh, but that's down the road. So as you finish turning there, I've got a riddle for you. And if you want to answer, you're welcome to. This thing, all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal. Slays kings, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Figure somebody will know it over there. But if you, like Bilbo Baggins, answered time, then you are correct. Time is something that's really fascinating to stop and to think about. It is part of the creation. It's a creation of the Lord that binds everything else within creation. Our time is both very limited and very irreversible. You can never undo or redo something you have already done in time. And every second that ticks by is a second that you can't have back. That stresses you out to think about, doesn't it? And because of this, Scripture teaches us to recognize the brevity or the shortness of our lives in order to utilize them well. Psalm 90 is one of my particular favorites, but also the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, they focus a lot on the subject of time. All of time is marching forward to the return of Christ. So how should you be living now in order to best use the time that the Lord has blessed you with? Well, the answer really can be summarized with one word, worship. Worship, the worship of the triune God, is the supreme purpose of life. That's what the answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one says, that our whole purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's what worship is, is glorifying God and enjoying him. So if that is our highest possible eternal purpose, then it must be our highest purpose now in the present as well. And not only us as individuals, but for all of mankind. So whether we are growing in our capacity for worship or evangelizing others with the gospel so that others might worship the Lord too, worship is really the purpose of time. And that is really a direct result of who our God is. So because there is one true God, you must worship him alone. That's the thesis or the proposition for this sermon. So, with that introduction, let's read Acts 17, starting in verse 16, and then we'll go through to the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought, them, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assur- given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So I'll walk through three points this morning. The first is truth restless. In this point, we're looking at mostly verses 16 through 21. So it's important we remember what is going on in the surrounding context of this passage. Paul was traveling and he was preaching the gospel in synagogues and he had just gone through Thessalonica and Berea. But the Thessalonian Jews didn't take too kindly to Paul being there and they became jealous. So they ran him out of not just Thessalonica, but also Berea. But the Berean believers were able to sneak Paul out of town to Athens where he would be safe from these attackers. But Silas and Timothy, they stayed in Berea working to establish that new church for a few days before going on to rejoin Paul. And so Paul was alone in the philosophical, architectural, and cultural center of the ancient world. Now, if you were Paul and you had been under threat of constant attack for many weeks now, how would you be feeling? I would be ready to take a break and to recover A nice long nap and maybe a tour of the local sites would be in order. But Paul, he didn't think that way. He had no concept of killing time, or at least not how we often think of it. Remember, Athens was the cultural center of the world at that time. It may have been under the control of the Roman Empire, but even the citizens of Rome acknowledged that Athenian culture was superior to their own. Athens boasted numerous famous philosophers. Any of these names familiar to you? Socrates, Plato, Zeno, Anaxagoras, and Epicurus, and there are tons of others. 
but they were also known for their literature, not just their philosophy. They had famous writers like Herodotus, Sophocles, and Aristophanes. Their democratic government structure and their architecture were also famous throughout the world. And they had more temples to false gods than you could count. So if you wanted to experience the pinnacle of ancient cultural, Athens was the place to be. But it does not appear from the text that Paul enjoyed his tour of Athens very much. Rather than being amazed at the beauty or marveling at the buildings and the cultural achievements of this people, Paul was troubled. Luke says that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, you could also translate that word for provoked, that he was greatly upset or that he was even provoked to wrath. So the core of his being, in his very heart, he was deeply moved with anger at the amount of idolatry he saw all around him. This was a righteous anger over blatant sin. Paul didn't notice the beauty of the buildings, the culture, or the geography. We're really told of this one thing he noticed alone. He saw idolatry and pagan worship going on, and it upset him to his very core. Can you relate to that feeling of disgust in the face of idolatry? And we don't have enormous physical temples to false gods, but our culture is no less idolatrous. We're surrounded by just as much evil idolatry, if not more, than Paul was in Athens. Rather than temples built to Athena, we have the cult of social media. Instead of worshiping Zeus, many serve the God of tolerance or environmentalism. Anything that takes the place of God in your heart is a crass idol usurping the position of the Lord. Really, the two most common idols boil down to self and things. Really, all these idols are rampant in our day. And it is right to be angered by idolatry as a believer. The question is simply, what do you do next? Well, there are only two possible avenues when angered by idolatry. You can sit and do nothing, or you can step up and get moving. And Luke tells us that Paul did something to combat the idolatry going on around him. In verse 17, we're told that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace. His solution to the problem before him was to go out and to proclaim the gospel. So notice that once again in Acts, we see the presentation of the gospel and reason going hand in hand together. So rather than just offering faith or logic, Paul offers a logical faith. The truth of the word is the answer to both of those extremes in the world of faith or reason. Because only through faith in Christ can reason work together with faith correctly. Through faith, Paul was moved to reason with the lost. And this is where we see a restlessness at work in this passage, in both the Athenians and in Paul. But the restlessness, the type of restlessness, was not the same in both parties. Really, what we see is that there's actually a juxtaposition between the restlessness of Paul and the restlessness of the Athenians. Paul is restless because of the truth that lives within him. The truth cannot sit silently in the face of evil and idolatry. Because if Scripture is correct that the Word of God is living and active, then it follows that it will be on the move at all times. If the Word of the Lord is always... 
if the word of the Lord always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent, then it cannot ever be an inanimate or a passive entity. Rather, the truth of God is active and moving. So that same truth that resided in Paul's heart, it gripped him completely. Paul could not remain silent or inactive when the loss in front of him were bogged in the mire, miry lies of the devil. So as light casts out darkness and cannot be overcome by it, so the truth must confront and dispel the lies of idolatry. It cannot and it does not hold back. Truth is by its very nature overpowering. So the restlessness of the truth in Paul is sharply contrasted against the restlessness that the Athenians were experiencing. This great culture of philosophers and poets, architecture and science was always looking for knowledge. Verse 21 says that the residents of Athens would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So I have a question for you, and I want you to think about this question logically. If Athens was truly the cultural masterpiece that it was purported to be, why were they still searching for new things? If you have figured out the answer and you have arrived at the truth, then you don't need anything new. Once a student finds the answer to a long equation, he doesn't keep searching for new solutions. If he has, if he has to keep looking, that means his initial solution was wrong. It didn't solve the problem. So the very fact that the Athenians always wanted the new proves that for all their culture, philosophy, and art, that those things could not satisfy their souls, that there was still something lacking in these men and women. They probably had more philosophy and temples than any other place in the world at this time, and yet they were just as lost and desperate as everybody else. Their understanding of the truth was lacking, and they knew it. So in their searching, we see the craving in their hearts to know that there is something more out there. Purpose, happiness, relief, knowledge, and just maybe God himself. So through their searching, they showed themselves restless and needy. We see the same restlessness around us for one simple reason. We were made to be in communion with and to worship the Lord. But when we do not submit to Christ and worship him, we are left wondering and thirsty, seeking to gain fresh water from salty oceans and dry deserts. Really, the Internet has only made this restlessness more evident. We want more entertainment. We need more Facebook friends, Instagram followers, and we want to fix the world by ranting on X, formerly known as Twitter. People are increasingly religious, but then they refuse to join any larger religious group. Or maybe since we're just evolved animals, there's no purpose to life, so just live it up and enjoy it now while you can. Or maybe profess to believe in God, but seek to earn your way into glory. But you will quickly find yourself being crushed under the weight of your inability. So it doesn't matter what philosophy or fallen lifestyle you look at now, the problem is the same as it was in Athens in the first century. The Epicureans and the Stoics are alive and well today in good timers and in legalists. Because you see sin and heresy, false views, they don't really evolve or change. They just come back in a different disguise again and again. But we were created by God to live and to rest in his truth. 
But for fallen men and women in a sinful world who reject the truth, what then do you have left? Wondering and emptiness. And thus the restlessness of those seeking meaning is juxtaposed to those who are restless to share the truth. So like opposite poles of a magnet, the two groups are destined for impact. And so the restless truth seekers took Paul for an informal trial at the cultural center of Athens. And you can tell that their initial opinion of Paul was not very good. They called him a babbler and a preacher of foreign divinities. And preaching other gods, foreign gods, that was not allowed in Athens since that could cause problems. So they needed to check out this guy's teaching. So while not a full legal trial, this was much more serious than an informal debate. So the restlessness of the lost and the restlessness of the one proclaiming the truth were coming together for a clash. Paul now had a platform before the most prestigious philosophers and politicians in the world at the time. His opposition was fierce and his challenge or his setting was challenging. But his duty, nonetheless, was to present the truth to men very much in need of the gospel. That takes us into the second point, truth presented. This is looking at verses 22 through 30. So Paul begins his appeal by making a point of contact with his hearers. He says in verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. As they stood in the Areopagus, they were surrounded by the amazing architecture of the temples of Athens. Everywhere around them were enormous and ornate monuments to the religious Greeks. So the backdrop of this trial was a stark reminder of the innate desire to worship in the human heart. But it also highlights the problem that religion alone saves no one. Most of Paul's hearers did not even believe in these old Greek gods anymore. Most of them just believed in some form of fate or another. Most believed in fate or or maybe they were even pantheistic, that everything is God, so nothing really matters because if everything's God, nothing is. But worshiping at these temples was really a civil and a social duty. It was a tradition. It wasn't much more by this point. And Paul's words were very carefully chosen in order to lead his hearers into thinking and questioning what it is that they truly believe. All human beings are religious. All mankind worship something. The only question is what? So the Athenians, in place of the true God, they worshiped idols of all kinds, building ornate temples to their own ignorance. They didn't even believe in these gods anymore. So their temples, like their philosophical views, were cold and they were empty. They had so many idols that they even made an idol to an unknown God. That's just an excellent reminder that anything can become an idol, even things that are unknown. Well, the Athenians, like most Americans today, they rejected the truth of God. And as Romans 1 tells us, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The Athenians were some of the most religious people around, but they were idolaters because they did not worship the true God. So notice how Paul addresses the men of Athens. He didn't tell them that they were close to having it right. He didn't tell them they just needed to add one thing to their views. They needed a complete 
explanation of theology in the gospel. And notice where he begins his explanation. He begins by telling them not who mankind is, but who God really is. The Lord is not just the unknown God. And yet by beginning there, Paul was doing two things. First, remember that he was being questioned to see if he was a troublemaker, if he was preaching foreign gods illegally. So part of this is that defending himself, Paul showed he was not guilty of preaching a foreign divinity because the Athenians themselves acknowledged unknown gods. But second, and more importantly, the knowledge of the divine is written on the human heart. So somewhere within themselves, they knew that there was a supreme God who made them and ruled over all creation. And this true God alone is worthy of our praise. And God is worthy of praise because he is the creator. All things came into being at the word of the Lord. So unlike the Greek gods, he had no beginning. All things were made by him and nothing was made apart from him. Unlike the Greek and Roman gods that needed to be served and worshipped, God needs nothing from us. As Paul explained, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God did not live in or need those magnificent temples that surrounded them. Temples are monuments to the lost, not to the Almighty God. The Lord is completely and totally autonomous and other from his creation. He existed before the creation, and he became neither more nor less after he created the world. He is always perfect in power, holiness, and sufficiency. Furthermore, he is the sovereign God who has ordained all things that come to pass, ruling over every aspect of this world and even time. Nothing escapes his control. And nothing happens except by his allowance. So the creative and sustaining work of God is imprinted upon the entire world, but particularly upon the human soul. His providence is meant to lead us to the truth. We might categorize this under the general revelation of God, which all men receive. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 summarizes that well when it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. His providence, the innate sense of something greater and his kindness to us in providing for us each day are all meant to act as a guide to lead us to the knowledge of God. Even how we have been made is a sign of who God is. God desires for all mankind to sense that we have been made by him and to reach out and seek for him. He set up signs all through creation and within ourselves saying, go to the Lord and believe. And even pagan philosophers and writers, they understood this at some level. And you'll notice Paul quotes from two people here. And both of these are Greek writers and philosophers. So Epimenides and Erratus were the two many quotes. And neither were believers. And their writings were not talking about God. And yet part of what they said, they had some of it right. They had some details through general revelation. So Paul took some of those words and repurposed them and presented them in the right way in the right context. And so through another point of contact, he again was building the case that the Athenians naturally knew that their idolatry was wrong. So these Greeks may not have understood who the true God is, but they understood that whatever the true God is, we are made like him. 
And yet, despite this knowledge of how they had been made, they made up gods and worshipped idols made of things lesser than themselves. How could complex humans have originated from gold or stone? Simplicity does not beget complexity. So Paul's accusation of the Athenians is essentially this. You know that there must be an all-powerful creator and sustainer. And yet, you worship lesser idols that you yourself made. So not only do you worship the wrong things, but you worship in the wrong direction, bowing down to things lesser than your own humanity. It's irrational and it's a deadly idolatry. Imagine marking out these logical errors to some of the best philosophers and logicians in the world. That was some boldness. Let's move on to point three. Truth commanded, verses 30. So having built up his case against idolatry, Paul's next step was to apply that truth, apply that gospel to the Athenians. Because it's not enough for them to simply hear this new thing and then go on to the next new idea. Now that they have heard the gospel, they need to obey it. They can no longer cry ignorance. And this really brings us to the difference between general revelation and special revelation. The Athenians already had the general revelation of God. That's what Paul has been arguing all through this passage. His whole argument was to explain that they already know that there is a God. But without God speaking clearly to them, they were lost. General revelation exists so that man might reach out for and seek God. But the problem is that they won't on their own or they won't seek God in the right way on their own. So even if somehow someone honestly wanted to serve the Lord, how would they figure out who God is on their own? Because of our own sin and ignorance, we need God to speak to us clearly. And we hear him in his word, which is what we call special revelation. So the Athenians already had some sense of the general revelation of God, but they needed his special revelation. They needed the gospel presented to them clearly if they were to believe. So if Paul had never preached to them, they would have known general things about the Lord, but nothing specific. But from the moment that Paul preached the gospel to them, they became responsible for what they heard. Once an unbeliever hears the word presented clearly, they become responsible for the amount of revelation they have received. Paul preached to the Athenians, throwing them a lifeline to the truth. And before, they could plead ignorance and receive a lesser penalty for rejecting God. But with the full knowledge of God's grace to them in Jesus, there was no longer any excuse not to believe. With great power comes great responsibility, as Spider-Man's uncle says. But perhaps more accurately, with greater revelation comes greater culpability. And that's why Paul says in verse 30 that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So once again, we're reminded of the importance of time. Salvation and faith, they take place in time. So when God proclaims his gospel to the lost, he is commanding repentance and faith. There's no excuse not to take hold of the grace being given. And if you pass over that grace and reject it, then you condemn yourself. I notice here that the preaching of the gospel in the scripture is always a double-edged sword. Either you will be cut to the heart and you will come to the Lord in repentance, 
or you will be destroyed in the judgment for rejecting God's message of grace. And the day of judgment is coming for this world. And the only reason that it is not yet come is because God is still gathering in his people. He's mercifully giving mankind time in order to repent and believe in Jesus before he returns. The parable of the weeds in Matthew 13 tells the story of God planting a field of wheat. But during the night, an enemy, the devil, goes out and plants weeds throughout the field. And the servants of the Lord come to him and they say, well, this is a problem, so do you want us to go gather them up? But the Lord answers them and he says, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first, find them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. The day of gathering is coming soon for all people. On that day, Christ will sit on the throne and he will judge mankind. Those who reject the gospel message and reject the truth will be burned. But those who repent and believe in Jesus now will meet the judge as their Savior. So to both the unbeliever and the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof and assurance of what is to come. To those who reject Christ, his resurrection is a sign of their defeat and judgment. But to the believer, his resurrection is a sign of victory, Christ's lordship, and their future resurrection in Christ. The risen one is the dividing line between those who accept and reject his message of salvation. This message and call to faith is all the more amazing when we remember what is going on in this passage. Paul is basically in the middle of some sort of hearing before this court. They are sitting around judging his abilities and his message. After all, if anyone is going to determine whether a new idea is valid, surely it's these great Athenians. But what those Athenians did not realize when they brought Paul to the Areopagus is that they were the ones being judged by the truth. You can almost hear Paul saying through these words, I may be on trial before you now, but a day is coming when you will stand before the judge of all creation and you will have to give an answer for your entire life and for how you receive the message of the truth right now. So these Athenian philosophers, they may have had a lot of power, humanly speaking, but their power was limited. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ far surpassed anything that they had. Furthermore, the faith Paul proclaimed was unlike anything they had ever heard or would ever hear again. Greek philosophy at the time mostly went in two directions. The Epicureans sought to live a good life away from pain. You might call them the hedonists or the good timers. The Stoics were focused on duty and ethics and trying to live more of an honorable life. But neither of those can solve the problem of sin and judgment. Surviving the coming judgment does not depend on living licentiously or even in a disciplined manner. The right political views, social media followings, and the right emotional states, those aren't going to save you either. The only path to rescue is to go to Christ with your sin and your failure and to give it over to him. Only through repentance and faith can you be freed from the guilt and the sin that you bear. The idols around you can only condemn you further. The idols within your heart can only condemn you further. And your own efforts are even more worthless than those idols. 
The most religious person on earth will be incapable from saving themselves from sin. Only faith in Christ will rescue you from the judgment to come. And time is moving forward, minute by minute, second by second, and soon you will be out of seconds. So in a fallen world where you are not promised tomorrow, what are you to do with the time that you have left? You will continue to worship no matter what you do. The only question is this, what will you worship for the rest of your life? There are only two options. You can continue to worship the fallen, pathetic, and empty idols of this life, or you can worship the Lord. And so it was in Athens on that day long ago. Some heard the gospel message and they mocked it. They made fun of it. They despised it. They heard the message of God's mercy and grace in Jesus and that they could escape the punishment on their sin to come. But they rejected that truth. But some did believe and some did join Paul. The Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of some to convict them of sin and to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. And in those men, repentance led to faith. And here I must remind you of the nature of the gospel that we preach. It's not under my control any more than it is under any of yours. These are the words of God that we give to people. And that is why we evangelize this world with his message, not with our own. Paul, aside from Christ himself, was the greatest evangelist to walk this earth. He expertly presented the truth in the most scrutinizing ancient location in the world. He logically applied the truth to sick souls. He made points of contact. He referenced architecture, philosophy, and literature. He presented the truth clearly, powerfully, and then applied it to his hearers. But while some believed, some mocked and rejected it. And the lesson here is to remember that we preach God's word. We are ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is active, powerful, and never fails. But we may look at the mockery and assume that Paul somehow failed in his duty here. But their mockery was not a sign of Paul's failure, but their rejection of the truth. Because the gospel is always working either to harden or soften the hearts of its hearers. It is never inactive. So don't ever assume when sharing the gospel that it is your job to work in the hearts of the lost. Don't try to do the work of the Holy Spirit's job in salvation. Your job is to utilize whatever time and abilities you have been given in order to present the gospel to whoever God brings to you. So even as you pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, understand that his return comes with reward for those in Christ and judgment for those not united to him. So are you using your allotted time with just killing time? Definite amount of time left before God rolls up this entire creation like a garment. The clock is winding down to the day when the books will be open, the judge will take his seat, and judgment will begin. God has given you time now in this life. So will you worship the idols of your heart or will you worship the God of truth? And if you worship Jesus now, how will you share the gospel with others so that they too might worship the true God? The world is running out of time to hear that gospel message. And so I hope that the truth is restless in your heart. 
seeking you, leading you to seek every opportunity to proclaim Jesus to a struggling and lost world. Because one day our job on this earth will be done. So be faithful with the time that God has given to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't know why you called us, and yet you did out of your love. And we rejoice in that, and we praise you for that. And yet there are many who do not know the truth. There are many who are desperate for the truth. And some will reject the message, and yet by your Spirit, others will believe it. And so, Lord, we know our job is not to change people's hearts on our own. Our job is simply to bear the message. Our job is simply to preach the truth and pray that you would be at work. So, Lord, help us to be faithful to that task with the time you have given us here. Help us to be faithful to the calling that Christ has given us. And help us to worship you because of it. Pray in his name. Amen.